Hello, this is Dr. Michael Lang, and I am the chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Medicine at ECU. This is the start of a series of podcasts intended to provide an overview of each class of psychiatric medications. As we start by delving into the antidepressants, let me let you know that a CDC report in 2017 revealed 12.7% of the American population aged 12 and over were reported to be taking a prescribed antidepressant in the past month. Antidepressants are the most prescribed medication in individuals aged 12 to 44 and are the third most prescribed drug in the U.S. after analgesics and antibiotics. Needless to say, it is fitting that we start our podcast by going over the different classes of antidepressants. Dr. Monica Sharma is here with me to discuss some of these classes. But first, we will go over a brief introduction to antidepressants. Dr. Sharma, why are antidepressants so popular? Well, there are several reasons why. While they're most known for treating depression, they actually have a broad spectrum of efficacy and indications that make them a uniquely uniquely versatile medication. Um, They can treat several different diseases, and they're used for conditions like anxiety, pain, PTSD, OCD, panic disorder, bulimia, aneurysis, smoking cessation, premature ejaculation, migraine prophylaxis, ADHD, and, and many more. In fact, antidepressants are actually uh, are, are often more successful in treating anxiety disorders than treating depression, uh, where they get their name from. Antidepressants also lack an addictive pot- potential, and they're easy and safe to use with a very low risk of fatality, especially with the newer antidepressants. Not to mention, most antidepressants are available in generic form now and are quite in- inexpensive. A 90-day supply of most antidepressants costs about $10. And so the combination of all these factors has made antidepressants a very important and very attractive medication for clinicians to use. What exactly is depression, Dr. Sharma? Well, at its core, depression is characterized by a persistent low mood and or uh, a loss of interest in, in activities that were previously found pleasurable. It can also be accompanied by fatigue, difficulty concentrating, changes in appetite, sleep, or psychomotor activity. People may also experience feelings of guilt or worthlessness and may have suicidal thoughts in addition to that. And in order to make a clinical diagnosis of depression, the DSM-5 requires that an individual must be experiencing at least five of these diagnoses, at least five or more, during the same two-week period. And at least one of those five or more needs to be a depressed mood or anhedonia. So how can we grade the severity of a patient's depression? How would we categorize this? So there are certain clinical measures of depression that can quantitate it for us, um, such as the Beck Depression Inventory and the Patient Health Questionnaire. Um, And these can help us not only diagnose, but also determine the severity of depression. Depression can be categorized into unipolar if there are no periods of abnormally elevated mood, or bipolar if there are periods of mania. Depressed mood can also be a symptom of many other mood disorders, as I'm sure you're aware, like dysthymia, postpartum depression, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, seasonal affective disorder, and many more. 
And also, based on the accompanying features and phenotype, depression can be further categorized into different subtypes, such as typical, which is the most common one we think of, atypical, catatonic, and melancholic depression. So a typical depression, what's unique there is that it lacks mood reactivity. What that means is a person's mood will not change or react when something positive happens. However, in patients with atypical depression, they can respond to positive events with an improvement in their mood, even if it's temporary. On the other hand, melancholic depression is a form of very severe major depression that's characterized by complete loss of pleasure in all or nearly all activities, or even a complete lack of reactivity to usually pleasurable stimuli. These differences in phenotype and subtype of depression and their accompanying features tend to reflect the comparable levels of specific neurotransmitters underlying it and tend to respond better to antidepressant use that have um, complementary effects. Do we actually know what causes depression, Dr. Sharma? And if so, how do antidepressants necessarily treat it? Well, depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide, but uh, surprisingly, there's still much we don't know about it. While exposure to certain life events certainly play a role, the biological causes of depression have been much less obvious. Our neurobiological understanding of depression continues to evolve, and much of our current understanding is shaped by the accidental discovery of antidepressants and later on their mechanisms. Many antidepressant drugs we know acutely increase levels of monamine transmitters in the synaptic cleft. Most increase levels of serotonin, and some antidepressants also increase levels of norepinephrine and dopamine. And so the understanding of this mechanism led to the development of the monamine hypothesis of depression, which states that depression is caused by a deficiency in these monamine neurotransmitters in the brain, and correcting this deficiency will enhance their activity and subsequently treat depression. It also suggests that you know, deficits of certain neurotransmitters are linked to specific symptoms and phenotypes of depression we touched on earlier. Studies have suggested that serotonin in particular is um, you know, important in regulating mood, behavior, and sleep, whereas norepinephrine is more important for arousal, alertness, and memory, and dopamine in movement, pleasure, and motivation. What does it exactly mean to treat depression? So based on established randomized trials in the past half century, we define depression as being clinically treated when there's a 50% or more improvement in overall symptoms from a patient's baseline. The goal of treating depression is not only to achieve a higher rate of remission, but also to prevent relapse of future episodes. The Hamilton Depression Rating Scale is a standardized rating scale that's commonly used to translate uh, patient symptoms into quantitative measurements and uh, evaluate treatment response. Efficacy in studies is usually defined as a 50% improvement on a standard depression scale, such as the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale. But it's important to note that the scale doesn't adequately capture the variety of symptom dimensions influenced by antidepressants, such as pain, uh, work productivity, anxiety, cognition, and, you know, in addition to their antidepressant effects, these quote-unquote non-depression effects of antidepressants are also very important in influencing a patient's well-being. So how successful are these drugs actually in treating depression? What is our success rate? Uh, there are over 50 years' worth of trials that demonstrate the efficacy of antidepressants in treating depression. This, bec this effect becomes more uh, pronounced with severe, more severe levels of depression 
and it diminishes to uh, close to a placebo effect the milder their clinical presentation is. Um, however, no antidepressant has been shown to be has been shown reliably to be more than 50 to 70 percent effective in any trial. Moreover, only about one-half to two-thirds of patients with major depression will respond to any given trial of antidepressants. So a general rule of thumb is that approximately one-third of individuals achieve full remission with an antidepressant, one-third will experience a response or partial remission, and one-third will be non-responders. Do antidepressants have any known limitations? A couple, actually. The main limitation of antidepressants you know, include their side effects, their slow onset of action, and their lack of efficacy, like we spoke about in many patients. Perhaps uh, among these three, the most disappointing is their delayed onset of action. All currently available antidepressants take about one to two months or longer to exert their maximum benefits on mood, and none has been re- shown to reliably reduce this time frame. And so when you compare it to, you know, a treatment like ECT, this long latency of antidepressant action with these oral agents and their lack of efficacy in a significant subset of patients um, are significant limitations of our currently available antidepressants. Novel agents currently under investigation are addressing some of these shortcomings, and so ketamine is one that's been shown to have benefits within hours of a single infusion compared to the four to eight weeks that we require with the conventional drugs. But relapse rates are high with ketamine, and studies that, studies that would inform follow-on strategies to maintain response and remission with ketamine uh, use are lacking. Why exactly do antidepressants take so long to work, and why don't they work for some patients and not others? So those are really great questions. Despite the success of the monamine hypothesis like we spoke about, it does have a number of limitations and discrepancy with clinical, clinical observation. For one, all monoaminidure antidepressants have a delayed onset of action of at least one week. And second of all, there is a sizable portion of depressed patients that don't adequately respond to these antidepressants. So these are two things that are you know, very contradictory in, the, in this hypothesis. We're not certain, but one explanation for this therapeutic lag is that the acute increase in serotonin or other monoamines in the synapse may not be sufficient in immediately enhancing neurotransmitter activity. Rather, it appears to be that antidepressants are exerting their therapeutic effect by causing autoreceptor desensitization over several weeks, which results in increased firing of serotonergic neurons and improvement in mood. As for why some patients have treatment-resistant depression, there's a number of alternate hypotheses, such as you know, including glutamate, epigenetic mechanisms, cortisol hypersecretion, and inflammatory hypotheses. What are some of the common side effects or adverse events patients need to be aware of when taking these drugs? Common side effects of antidepressants uh, include, in particular, GI effects like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Dry mouth is also very common, weight gain, dizziness, headaches, sexual dysfunction, emotional blending. Other rare but important side effects to keep in mind include serotonin syndrome due to an excessive serotonin. And this can present as, you know, confusion, agitation, delirium, really any altered mental status with that's accompanied by, you know, signs of autonomic dysfunction, either you know, nausea, vomiting, hypertension, diaphoresis or you know, neuromuscular abnormalities like tremor, clonus, hyperreflexia, rigidity, 
It's rarely fatal if proper medical intervention has been taken, but it's important to keep in mind. And uh, in addition, you know, each class of antidepressants has a unique composition of side effects that reflects their mechanism. We see that the older generation of, of antidepressants tend to have more severe side effects. For example, the MAOIs that we'll go over in the next episode are associated with hypertensive crises when they're ingested with tyramine-rich food, whereas the TCAs are associated with drug-induced QT prolongation, and they can increase risk of torsades and sudden cardiac arrest. SSRI use in pregnancy has been associated with a variety of risks, but there's varying degrees of causation. Um, another problem we want to keep in mind with antidepressant use is the chance of uh, antidepressant-induced mania or hypomania in patients who have yet to be diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Many cases of bipolar depression are very similar to those of unipo unipolar depression, and so a person can misdiagnose with unipolar depression and then given an antidepressant. And we see actually antidepressant-induced mania in about 20 to 40 percent of those with bipolar depression. What's the risk of causing suicide that we hear about in adolescence? So in 2004, the FDA issued a black box warning on many antidepressants about this, you know, the risk of suicidality in young adults. This warning came shortly after the UK regulatory agency found data that demonstrated an increased risk of suicidality with, uh, with Paxil or paroxetine. In 2006, they expanded this warning to include 36 different antidepressants, and they raised the age of potentially vulnerable patients from 18 to 14. This is a very highly controversial topic, but you know, an increasing number of reports have questioned the actual validity of this FDA warning, especially considering a decline in the prescription of antidepressant drugs um, and how they're associated with an increase in the rate of suicidal events in patients with severe depression. Since antidepressants take weeks to work and half the individuals will not respond, how do you choose an antidepressant best suited for the patient? So antidepressants vary considerably um, in their mechanism of action, dosing, toxicity, and potential for drug interactions. But all of the classes of antidepressants appear to be about equally efficacious. No drug has been shown to be more than 50 to 70 percent effective. But you do begin to see differences when you're comparing rates of remission or, or, or uh, treatment of sp uh, specific subtypes of depression. These advantages are relatively modest, and they're outweighed significantly by the disadvantages and their side effects and safety. And optimally matching an antidepressant to a specific patient is as much as art as science. Parameters including subtype of depression, age, sex, medical comorbidities are weighed alongside their side effect profile, safety, and cost. The best approach to, to choosing an antidepressant is to look at their constellation of symptoms and their comorbidities and select the agent that best targets the, that phenotype while also avoiding side effects that are too risky or intolerable. So in summary, all antidepressants have about the same efficacy. However, some antidepressants may not be as effective as others for certain types of depression and specific symptoms, and some may be contraindicated or worsen patients' other comorbidities. The best approach to choosing an antidepressant is to actually look at the patient's constellation of symptoms and comorbidities and select the agent that best targets that phenotype while avoiding side effects that are too risky. Thank you, Dr. Sharma, for this overview of antidepressants. And now, with our next episodes, we'll start looking at the individual agents.